Well, hey, good morning and welcome once again to St. John. My name is Dion and I'm so glad that you're here today as we are continuing our series, Hollow. Uh, One thing I want to call out before we get started today, and that's what's happening two weeks from today on Labor Day weekend. And some of you may be here in town, some of you may be elsewhere, some of you on live stream already are elsewhere. I want to to challenge you to take part in our neighborhood walk weekend. Um, If you haven't heard about this yet, let me just give you a quick rundown on it. Um, On Labor Day weekend, we won't meet for regular services. Instead, at normal service times, including Saturday night at 5 o'clock, 9 and 1045, we encourage you to tune into your live stream. You're going to hear the shortest message ever from me. It's going to be like less than a 15-minute deal total. And then um, you're going to spend the rest of your 60 or 70 minutes that you normally spend in worship. You're going to spend time with your family members, your small group, other people in your neighborhood, or other people at St. John doing something that is so powerful, that is so transformative, that you, you, you just like, you will probably overlook it because it's so powerful but it doesn't seem that way. You're going to go and you're going to take a walk through your neighborhood. And you're going to um, pray for God's favor to rest on people all around you. And that's it. And we believe God's going to do extraordinary things. So I just want to call that out. It's in two weeks. It's kind of different. Um, but I really hope that you don't just take that as an excuse to be like, oh, cool, there's no church. I'm just going to you know, do whatever. Um, I hope you do whatever after you tune in to the live stream for a few minutes and then go take a walk. Because I truly believe this is the kind of thing that our world needs more of. More of God's favor. More of God's people. Just asking God's blessing and... Uh, in favor over our communities and our world. So uh, that's that. Today, we're continuing in our series, Hollow, where we're looking at the things that often leave our faith, our life, um, our churches in a place that are less than full, that, that uh, they, they're threatened, they threaten our very joy and growth and our relationship with Jesus. And so often, these are things that we would never expect. I know I never expected them, and especially the thing that we're going to talk about today. See, um, when I was in middle school, my family, we joined, we became part of a different church, and in that church, we, um, we, uh, we experienced just a very different way of, of doing church. It was like nothing we'd ever experienced before. Um, it was a very relevant church. It was more contemporary. The messages were just so true to life. It was a very spirit-filled place, and so here I was, this middle school boy, kind of at this you know, place in my faith where I was either going to pursue it or I was not. Um, and I came to this church, and it was just such a, a faith-building environment for me. And so I started to grow on my faith just uh, in, in, in huge ways. And this was happening during the early 1990s. Now, if you did not live in the early 1990s, it was kind of a weird time for us as a, as a nation, especially as it related to church and faith. It was the last gasp of what was kind of the Christian right, this movement within politics to bring Christian morality and Christian values more firmly into the public school the public square. And so Christians in those days were really fired up about a lot of political causes and trying to get Christian morality to be a bigger part of our political world and just, you know, our, our government and our schools and everything else. And so here I was, I was this, uh, this young man growing in my faith a ton. I'm really excited about Jesus and all that. I was, I was learning that he had done for me and all that he could mean for the world. And then this other thing's going on out in the political world with, with the Christian right. And I fully got swept up into it. Um, I I wonder how many of you remember uh, these displays. I think they're still around, but I know in the 1990s in Michigan, these were on church lawns everywhere. These look familiar to any of you? Have you seen any of these? Um, For me in the 1990s, as I was really getting, you know, caught up in my faith, trying to take it seriously, these things, uh, this this principle became an obsession for me. If you don't know what this display is, um, usually with these displays, there is a sign, and it says that each one of these crosses represents a life a child lost to abortion each day in the U.S. 
And so uh, people would put these on church lawns for a couple of weeks just kind of as a demonstration for that. And for me, in those years, the cause of the unborn, the sanctity of life, the protection of the unborn became my passion. And so as a high school student, I found myself, um, I found myself going to Planned Parenthood and doing small like kind of prayer vigil protests, not yelling at people or anything, but just gathering to pray with some signs um, outside of those clinics. I mean, this is a high school student that I'm doing this, and uh, I found myself in support, doing supportive things for pregnancy counseling centers in our community, and, and I still think pregnancy counseling centers are amazing. They do amazing good in, in our communities, and so I was, you know, doing walkathons, trying to raise money, and, and helping do other fundraisers for our local pregnancy counseling center, and then I went to college, and I was part of a student-led group who actually brought one of these displays to the front lawn of our college, and it was a Christian college, and so we put it up there, and, and I remember even there, it was controversial, and some people thought it was a little too harsh, and so I was asked to write a, uh, a short article um, for our school newspaper about, about, you know, why we did this and why I thought it was a good idea, and I still remember a line that I wrote. I wrote, this display actually has no power to make anyone feel anything, and if you're feeling guilty or if you find it bothersome, that is only the sting of your own conscience, and I just laid it down, didn't I? I just lay the smack down on people. And, uh, and for me, that's, that's what I became passionate about. More than passion, this is something that I was zealous for. And this, this word zeal, from its root, it, it means to be hot or to boil, uh, to be on fire, to, to be passionate about something. That's what zeal is. And if you look around our world, especially today, There is no shortage of people who are hot, who are on fire, who are boiling over for different things. Am I right? Um, Zeal isn't a problem for us, and and, and yet the problem with zeal is that zeal can be one of these things that, if we're not careful, can leave us hollow. Uh, Before I go any further with this, um, I want to take a moment, I just want to pause because that's one of the great gifts of church, right? That we, we get a chance just to pause. And this doesn't happen much in the rest of life. You don't go to work and your boss is like, hey, you know what? Why don't you just sit there and think deeply for a minute? Don't worry about all those reports or all this work or calling that client back, right? Just, just, just take some time and think about deep, significant... You know, they don't do that to you at school, right? Hey, just class, close your books. I just want you to sit and think about some things that are really important that you haven't had time to think about this week, right? right? No one else does this. I want to do this for you. I want to give you time to pause. And as you're pausing, here's the question I want you to ask yourself. Uh, What am I zealous for? What am I zealous for? What is it in me that gets me passionate, that sets my heart on fire, that may cause me to boil over sometimes? For good or bad, what am I zealous for? And so we're going to pause, and I want you just to take a moment and think about that word or that phrase. Maybe you need to you know, type it into your phone so you remember it because I want it to be specific or maybe you need to write it down on a, on a sheet of paper on the back of your handout. Um, you know, whatever you need to do, be specific. And it doesn't have to be the thing that you're most zealous for in all the world. Just uh, as you think about what makes you passionate, what sets you on fire, what is it for you? Take a moment. zealous for? Maybe it's something in your personal life, your kids, work, football season, or 
is it something more on the ethical front? Are you zealous for the sanctity of life, the protection of the unborn, the protection of marriage or family values, greater purity in our culture? Is it an issue of justice, the, the poor, ending human trafficking or human slavery? Is it racial equality or gender equality, economic equality? zealous for you locking it in I want this to be specific now whatever you wrote down or whatever you have firmly etched in your mind or whatever you typed into your phone I want you to look at that for a second because that can be a very good thing. In fact, I bet a lot of the things that you wrote down are good things, they're godly things. Uh, just last week, um, I, I heard a story about um, Cambodia. I saw this in Christianity Today, um, and I, I didn't realize this article had been published, but um, 10 years ago, do you know that in the nation, in the kingdom of Cambodia, 10 years ago, Cambodia was the worst place for children on the planet because of human trafficking, sex trafficking, child brothels. I mean, it was, just, it was just abhorrent what was going on in Cambodia in the lives of kids 10 years ago. And, um, and, and then uh, now, today, this article was published to talk about how Cambodia is now a very different place. It's, 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 a, it's become a safe place, a place where children are cherished and protected. And this article is all about what happened. And, and it, I think in this church especially, we know what happened that 10 years ago, Cambodia was a horrible place. At least here, starting seven years ago, we said, we're gonna do something about that. And so we started giving our resources and we started Stronghold Cambodia. And, and we, we are part of, of this other movement of other Christians and churches who said, kids in Cambodia don't deserve the life that they have. They deserve something better. This isn't right. This isn't just. And, and so we got to work and we created a, a program for kids so that they would have a life outside of school and their parents would begin to value that and to see a, a way forward for their kids outside of economic or sex slavery. And, and now as we sit here today, 10 years later, 10 years later, Cambodia is a place that's transformed for children because Christians like you decided that it was something that we wouldn't sit for anymore and we, we got zealous about a righteous, godly cause. You should be proud about that, right? I mean, praise God for that. Amazing. So, whatever you wrote down, that chances are that can be a very good thing. But it can also be a dangerous thing if your zeal gets misguided. And that's what we're going to talk about today as we move to the next chapter in the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 4. Um, as, we, as we look at this letter that Paul was writing to this group of Christians in a region called Galatia, um, we're, we're going to look at the threat that our zeal plays to our faith and to our churches and to the whole movement of Christianity, which seems ironic because Paul, out of everyone, is probably the most zealous guy you could ever meet. Um, so he was a guy who was willing to travel all around the world telling people about Jesus, and he was shipwrecked, and he was beaten, and he didn't stop. People tried to execute him, and he didn't stop. He just kept going telling people about Jesus. The only thing that finally stopped him is when they finally killed him, when they finally executed him. That was it. Nothing else could stop Paul. And so you want to talk about zeal. Paul is a guy who understands zeal, and I don't think that's then ironic or hypocritical of him to warn us about zeal. I think because he understood zeal better than anyone, he understood how dangerous zeal is can be if it becomes 
misguided. And so today we're going to look at um, Galatians chapter 4. You can start turning there in your Bible if you want, or the words will be here on the screen. Um, But first, I just want to give you some context. Right before this section, Paul is uh, talking about the thing that he talks about a lot through Galatians. Some of the same words that he, he goes over again and again. His basic message through Galatians is Jesus has come to set you free and he's come to give you life and he's come to, to set his love and affection upon you only by what he's done, not because of anything that you have done or anything that you have to do. And so his message to the Galatian Christians are like, so why then, knowing that you're completely free and Jesus has made a way for you to come back to the Father and live under grace and belong to him, why would you, why would you go back and enslave yourself with religious ceremonies and traditions and festivals and different meals and all of this other stuff that used to be required of you. Why would you go back to that stuff? That's, that's, that's foolishness, Paul will say. He's, he says that's idolatry for you to now trust in that stuff since Jesus has come to set you free. And, and so he talks about that again and again, so I'm just going to skip that part. And I'm going to get to another part in uh, Galatians 4 at verse 13 where Paul makes this personal. He doesn't make it a theological argument, but he begins to talk about history that he shares with the Christians there. So he says, as you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. Now, I don't know if you knew that. I didn't know that, that the only reason he stopped in Galatia to begin with is because he was sick and he had to make a diversion. So it wasn't a part of his original plan, at least then, to visit them. He kind of had to have a stopover. And it wasn't just any sickness, he says. He goes on and he says, and even though my illness was a trial to you, so this, this wasn't just like some little like, oh, Paul has a cold and he needs to lie down. This is like one of those illnesses where, you know, someone comes to your house like on the holidays and they come and visit and, and they've got a kid who is like sickest with, or sick with the sickest kind of virus thing that you've ever seen and you're like, why did you bring that into my house? You know what I'm talking about? Don't act like you don't know what I'm talking about. I know you do. You've had those people, you're like, you brought that here? Like, oh my God, like, you don't want anyone to get that. And, and so that's kind of how Paul comes to them. He's, he's sick, and he's so sick that this is not just like an inconvenience. This is, this is gross that these people should have to put up with and take care of a guy who's in essence a stranger to them. He's so sick that it is, it is, it is a severe trial on them. It is a hardship on them that they should have to care for him. And, and so he just, he puts it straight. He's like, look, I know when I came to you, it was not planned and I was sick and it was a big burden on you. But here's what he says. He says, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. You know, in spite of the fact that I was a mess and it was not good and it was ugly, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. See, Paul says, you know what, not only did you welcome me, but you listened to me, you, you embraced me, and you heard my message, and you treated me as if I was a messenger from God himself. You treated me as if I was Christ Jesus. He said, man, do you, do you remember that? Do you remember that when I first came to you? And you can imagine that, you know, whoever was appointed to stand up and read this letter in, in the churches of Galatia that Paul wrote to them, as, as they read this part of the letter, everyone just kind of goes, yeah, yeah, I remember that, Paul, he was a mess, that was ugly, but you're right. We, we took him in and we loved him and we listened to him and we received him. Yeah, that's right. And then Paul asks a question. He says, where then is your blessing of me now? 
See, I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Now, the only reason I have this highlighted is for any elementary school boys in the room, just because you guys like gross stuff, and I didn't want you to feel left out. So, um, right? So, so whether it's an illness of his eyes and, you know, it was something that affected his eyes, or whether it's just a saying, I mean, Paul's saying like, I can tell you that something is changing you, but there was a time where you would have ripped your eyes out of your head and given to me if I needed them. You would, have, you would have given me a kidney without thinking about it. And again, it's kind of gross, kind of graphic, but that's the point. Paul says there was a time where you would have, you would have stopped short at nothing in order to help me out. But something has changed. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? There was a time, Paul says, when we were tight, when there was a deep love relationship between us and you would have done anything for me and now something has changed. And I'm just speaking the same message to you that I always have and now you're acting, you're acting like I'm your enemy. Now in all of your minds of hope right now you're asking the question, gosh, what, what could have happened? How could their relationship have changed so much? Certainly it's the question that Paul is asking, except he already knows the answer. Here's what he says. He says, those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. See, what's the problem in Galatia? Misguided zeal. And so Paul says, those people, and you all know those people, right? Come on, you know those people. Why are you looking at me like you don't know those people that he's talking about? Well, we talked about them a couple of weeks ago. Pastor Doug talked about them. They, they're the people who are coming in and you're going, you know, you know, Paul, he claims to be an apostle, but you realize that he wasn't actually ever with Jesus. He didn't spend time with him. I mean, Peter did, and Matthew did, and James did, and, and the other James did. And, you know, like all of these guys, they, they did. And, and Paul, what, what's he talking about? He's calling himself an apostle. He doesn't have that kind of authority. And Paul, you remember, he was the guy who actually was against this movement at the beginning, so I don't know where his credibility is. And, uh, and, do, and do you realize that, that Paul, man, he takes this grace thing, which, okay, we'll give you that there's this grace thing that Jesus did, and, but he just takes it too far. See, Paul says, what changed in Galatia is that these other people, these people who were zealous for traditions and ceremonies and heritage and, and, and ceremonial meals and different, you know, clean and unclean foods and all that stuff, those people took issue with Paul because he wasn't zealous about the same things that they were zealous about. And so they start a smear campaign against Paul. And I'm pretty sure even back then it happened out in the church parking lot. Uh, you know, people are like whispering and they're like, yeah, Paul, I just, I just don't know about him anymore. Did you hear that in the last election, he didn't even vote for a Republican? People are going, what? Yeah, yeah, and you know what else? He didn't attend that rally for the protection of blah, 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 whatever. You know, he, he, he didn't even go. You're kidding me, Paul? I thought he was a Christian. He didn't go. Yeah, I know, and, and it makes it even worse. Uh, someone asked me the other day if we were gonna participate in Refugee Sunday, and he said no. Hasn't he read Matthew 25, what you've done for the least of these you've done unto me? How could he possibly resist refugees? And everyone's going, my goodness, this guy, he's not only not worthy to be a pastor, he's not even a real Christian, right? See, we see this stuff happen all the time. Misguided zeal. A a way to describe it is, is when God's burden for you becomes a burden you inflict on everyone else. And I know maybe you have a hard time seeing yourself ever doing this. Um, but I'm sure it's happened to you. you. You can picture in your mind someone else doing this to you, can't you? Those moments where, where God taps you on the shoulder 
because um, he's got something that he wants you to give attention to, something that he wants you to care about. Maybe it's based on your life experience or it's based on he just needs somebody and so he taps you on the shoulder and he says, hey, you, I want you to care deeply about, you know, I don't know, fill in the blank. Maybe, maybe it's refugees, maybe it's orphans. God says, I want you to care deeply about orphans. And you hear that and your response, your reaction is to think it's your job to get everyone else caring about orphans as much as you do, which isn't altogether bad, right? It's, it's good to try to encourage other people to care about godly causes, but here's what so often happens when our zeal becomes misguided is, uh, is, is it's not only enough that you're trying to get other people to care about that thing, but you start to judge people who don't care about it as much as you do. And so you say, hey, join with me in saving the world's orphans. And, and they say, hey, th- that's, that's awesome that you feel that way. I just, you know, that's not really my thing or I'm caught in something else. And, and instead of going like, oh, okay, I'll move on. I'll talk to someone else. You, you go, how can you, do you even know Jesus? I mean, you must not have the Holy Spirit because if you did, you would know that this is really important. And you start to judge people who don't care about the same causes, the same, the same things, the, the same things you're zealous about to the same degree that you do. And, and maybe someday you even decide you're going to leave your church because you're going to go find a church who cares about orphans because that's what real Christians do. See, you know your zeal has become misguided when all of a sudden you, you violate the fundamental Christian principle of conduct, which is to act and to live according to love. And you start to violate that and you start to act in unloving ways and you feel justified in so doing because you've got a cause that demands it. See, our zeal becomes misguided when we start turning against each other, we start judging each other and we no longer treat each other with love, which is exactly what Paul is encountering in Galatia. They used to have this great love relationship and all of a sudden they're treating him like he's an enemy. Why? Because he's not zealous about the things that these false teachers are zealous about and, and, and they're stirring him up and they're saying like, you can't love Paul if he doesn't care about the things that I care about as much as I, you know. And it becomes this great excuse to treat Paul in an unloving way. And it happens to us all the time, doesn't it? Or at least other people do it to you because you would never do that, right? Yeah. Um, here's what else is, uh, is another way to identify misguided zeal. It's when your pet cause replaces Jesus as the object of your worship. When no matter how good or godly that thing is that you wrote down on your paper or typed into your phone, uh, when that thing replaces Jesus as the object of your worship, your zeal has become misguided. It's become destructive. Now, I know, again, none of us would say like, oh yeah, I really do care about this more than I care about Jesus. We'd never admit that. So uh, l- let me show this to you in a different way that, that maybe will help you understand. Now, we're just back to school. So I need a, a volunteer, an elementary-aged school uh, volunteer, so a kid who's in elementary school. It's not really that hard of a thing, but I'm going to invite you forward. So if you want to volunteer, raise your hand. A few people are like being volunteered by their family members. It's, uh, it's, it's not bad. I, come on, I need some help. So this is about you. This is about helping me. I need some help. I'm just going to come down and grab someone if you don't volunteer yourself. What's that? I hear something over here. Yeah. Yeah, come on up. Give him a hand. Come on up. All right. Thank you. All right. Oh. <laughs> Take your finger with you. All right. Remind me of your name. 
Cade. 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 All right. So hold this for a second. Okay. I'm going to have you do something just a minute. Make sure you don't let that go. That's your job right now. So um, for, for us, uh, what it really means to, it's bright up here, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, it's uh, what it really means to live a life in Christ. What, what it means to have Jesus living in you is kind of like this. When you are full of Jesus, when Jesus' love lives in you, when you understand that he loved you enough to give his life for you, that he took away all of your sin and your shame and everything that separates you from God, when you understand what it means that he, he loves you, that you're his son, that he's got great things for your future, when you're, when you're living life filled with Jesus and he's the object of your trust and love and worship, it's kind of like this. You're, it's kind of like this, right? You're living life and you are filled with joy and hope and love uh, positivity and optimism, and even when things go wrong, don't let go of that. Even when things go wrong, and you know life knocks you down, or or you you know you think something's really important, and you're out there trying to make a difference in the world, and you experience a setback. What happens, Cade? What happens? Can you keep? Can, can we keep you down, Cade? When you're filled with Jesus, when He's the object of your worship? When, no, 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 no. Even when life comes against you and you get knocked down, you may stay down for a minute. But but when you're filled with Jesus, He just has a way of of. Uh, here we are. Uh, he has a way of just filling you again with his, his love, his joy, and his hope. And you can just, you can just kind of rise above. Now, all right, Kate, here's where I really need you. I'm going to take this for a second. I'm going to trade you. Um, I want you to take this. Here's what happens, and I want you to start filling that up for me. So, uh, yeah. It's don't pass out, okay? So you can get it. You can stretch a little bit if you need to. Um, so here's what happens when we replace our hope in Jesus, our, our worship of Jesus, and uh, we replace him with some of our pet causes. Keep working on it, buddy. I, I didn't, no, it's okay. I'm, you don't have to rush, but I just want you to keep trying. There you go. All right, you're getting it. Yep. All right, there you go. You're getting, getting some out of it. There you go. Yeah. So when you replace that with, with your efforts, <laughs> g- give me a little more air in there, Cade. A little more air. All right, you're, do, you're doing great. You're doing great. All right, give me, here, I'm going to pinch it off for you. Give me a little bit more, because I'm not putting my mouth on it now. I love you, but I'm not willing. All right, big breath, big breath. Blow, blow, no, blow. All right, all right, Kate, we're just going to, we're going to stop there. That's good enough. All right, hold this again for a second, because I can't tie this off. Um, so when we, when we fill our lives instead with zeal, even godly zeal, excitement about a cause, um, and, and, you know, passion for something, and, and that's the, that becomes the, the source of our, the, you know, the core of our life, the object of our worship. Um, now, this would be a little bit bigger, but if this were bigger, um, you did your best. I appreciate you. If we, if we did this bigger, um, it, these wouldn't look much different, would they? Right? It wouldn't look much different from the outside. Again, just imagine this bigger. From the outside, uh, it wouldn't, it wouldn't, they wouldn't look much different. But they are different, right? Because what happens now, all right, give me this. What happens now, if, if this is you, you're no longer filled with Jesus, but you're filled with passion and zeal, and you're going to change the world, and it's all up to you. What happens when, when things come against you, when things don't go away? What happens? Uh, yeah, you go down. Can you make this float for me, Cade? Make that float. You didn't make it float. Can you try again to make that float? Keep it afloat, Cade. <laughs> Work to keep it afloat. Keep it afloat. I'll help you. Keep it afloat. Let's keep this thing afloat. Man, this kid's going to get tiring sooner. One of us is going to fall off the stage, right? Um, right? It, it's different, right? Suddenly, you couldn't be kept down. And now, you can't keep this thing going in there. And see, that's how you know. That's how you know when, when you've replaced Jesus as your object of worship and love and devotion as your hope. 
uh, that's how you know when your zeal has taken its place because things come against you in life, challenges come, you have a week like we've had in the last couple of weeks in this country and, and you get discouraged and you find yourself hopeless and defeated and, and eventually you just get tired of trying to keep your spirits up and stay living a life of joy and hope and love. It becomes a lot of work for what Jesus would do for us on, on his own. So uh, here you go, Cade, you can take those on. Can you thank Cade for his help? All right, don't hit anybody with those. Right, and, and we've walked into churches that have made that substitution, and on the surface they look just like any other church, and you walk in, and, and yet they've substituted a real love for Jesus, where Jesus is their core, they've, they've substituted him for a cause, or for tradition, or for literature, you know, whatever it is, and, and you can be in there for just a little bit of time, and, and it all looks okay on the outside, but you know that there's something hollow about it. See, that's how Paul finishes up here in this section of Galatians 4. He says, you know what, it's fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, provided that it doesn't replace your love and devotion for Jesus. It's fine to be zealous. And to be so always, not just when I'm with you. See, for Paul, he's not asking for more apathetic people in the world. That's just not in Paul. He's a zealous guy. He's not asking for, for people to be less passionate. He's just begging us to keep our zeal in the right place. It's fine. It's good to be zealous for whatever it is you wrote down. But not when that thing causes you to to turn against each other and to stop acting in love. Not when you let that thing become the object of your hope and worship. Not when you think that that is the hope of the world. It's no longer fine then, he says. I love what he says next. He says, my dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I love this phrase because for Paul, this is it. Right? I mean, how do you live in a, a crazy world filled with injustice and brokenness? He says, I, I'm in pain with you like a mother giving birth to a child, and my desire is that Christ is formed in you. See, that's what it is for Paul. That, that's what saves us. That's what saves the world. Christ being formed in us. He goes on and concludes. He says, and how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone. Because I am perplexed about you. He brings it back to love. See, here's the bottom line for Paul. Here's the bottom line for us today. Your zeal can't save you. Your zeal can't save you. Doesn't have the power to save you. And I know sometimes uh, we think it's, yeah, it's Jesus and my passion, Jesus and my commitment is Jesus and my, you know, getting circumcised, following religious meals. I mean, that's what it was for Galatia, but, but we always want to make it Jesus and, but Jesus doesn't measure you in that way. According to Jesus' perspective, he's enough. He's what saves you. That's it. You don't need anything else, especially at the core of who you are. Your zeal isn't what saves you, and here's what's so important for us today, for our world today, is that your zeal isn't what saves the world. And yet, how often do we talk about that um, like, it, like that's true? You know, we say the greatest issue of our time, the greatest threat of our time, and we fill in the blank. You know, it's, it's racism, it's inequality, it's human slavery, and those are all insidious things. But for a Christian, you know what the answer is? No matter what our time is, the greatest issue of our time, no matter what era you're living in, the greatest issue of our time, is that we're estranged from Jesus. And we are people who are empty and hollow and we are people who are dying and we are people who are diseased and we need Jesus. And everything else that's wrong in the world, everything else that we fight against, everything else that we feel zeal about, um, those, things, those things may just be symptoms of a greater problem. 
But the greatest need that we have, what, what, this, what this world needs is the one who came to save the world, who actually took that job upon himself. God didn't ask you to do that. He didn't, he didn't appoint you for a cause to do that. But instead, he sent a son into the world to do that, to save us. So your zeal for whatever that thing is, it may be fine and good, but that's not what's going to save the world. In fact, you, you, can, you can defeat that thing. Kids' lives in Cambodia can get better, but if you're, if you're just caught up in the next cause, it's going to be like a game of whack-a-mole that you can't win, right? Because it'll be another thing and another thing and another thing, and you'll be... See, for us, it's, it's good to pursue those things, but what does our world need most? Our world needs the same thing that we need most. To have Christ formed in us. And when Christ is formed in us, when we have the fullness of Jesus, then our world becomes a different place. And so today I want to bring it back to what I asked you earlier. What are you most zealous about? What are you most zealous about? And has your zeal become misguided or is it still in a healthy place and again you can detect that a few different ways has your zeal become an excuse for you to stop acting in love to others other people in the household of faith but people outside of the faith has it become like an excuse a crutch for you not to act in love anymore then your zeal has become misguided or have you begun to think in your mind, if we can just you know, fill in the blank, then our world will be whole again. If, if we can just solve this problem, if we can just do this thing, if we can just combat this thing, if you started to fall into that kind of thinking, that our world will be whole, whole again, then your zeal has become misguided. Because the only thing that will make our world whole is Christ being formed more fully in us, in our churches, in the people of our world. That's the thing that will make our world whole. Has your zeal become a thing where, um, where you, know, you just let it replace Jesus. And, and so you find yourself getting all twisted up every time something goes wrong, there's a setback in your cause and, and you find yourself in a depression and a funk because you're working so hard to, to keep the thing going and in moments of difficulty, you can't find hope, you can't find joy, you can't conjure up love. It's a sign that your zeal has become misguided. When, you know, when you're, as a pastor, when your church isn't growing like you want it to or you're not seeing the life change, is that a thing that depresses you? Or, or do you hold on to a resilient hope knowing that Jesus is still the savior of this world and he's still got a plan unfolding to save this world? If you find yourself down there and you can't rally and you're working really hard too, maybe it's a sign that your zeal is misguided. Today, I want to encourage you to invite Jesus to take his rightful place back in your life. Uh, if you've let zeal or something else, some other hope, take his place, I'm, I'm just going to encourage you to, to take a moment and allow Jesus, invite Jesus to take his place back. And maybe for some of you, that means inviting Jesus to take his place in your life for the first time because you come here and you're tired of feeling hollow and you're tired of feeling hopeless. And, and everything that goes wrong in the world, it just weighs you down so heavy and you're tired of living life that way. Maybe for you for the first time, this is your opportunity to invite Jesus to take that place in your life, the place that gives you fullness, to form himself within you so that even when the world is messed up, you can hold on to hope and joy. You can be a person of love. You can be a person 
of peace. Right now, in fact, I want to invite you to bow your heads and I want us together to do just that. Uh, So first, take a moment and admit, confess to God that your zeal, whatever you wrote down, or maybe other things in your life, have often become misguided. Go ahead and confess that, admit that. admit how in zeal and passion you've often done things that are not loving you've acted outside of love to others and admit that there are, there are plenty of times where you pin all of your hopes for your life or for the world on something other than the saving work, the life-transforming being of Jesus. ask you to invite Jesus to take his rightful place. To fill the hollow and hopeless places in your spirit. Those places where joy is gone, where love is gone, where peace is long gone. Jesus is here. He's present. He gave his life. And he's here today save you from all of that to fill you to be formed in you so it doesn't have to be fancy just invite him to take back the spot that's rightfully his Jesus we invite you in take the place in our lives that is made for you that we were made for and be formed in us where we have succumbed to hate renew us in your love and help us be loving to each other where we have fallen into despair give us give us joy when we think that there is no bright future ahead of us only doom and gloom give us hope and when we are torn up with anxiety and distress give us your peace 
Lord Jesus, remind us that we are yours and that you've accomplished that and there's nothing that can change that. And, and give us a zeal to live out of that truth, out of that identity. Give us a zeal to help as many people as we can possibly know and touch and reach to come to know that too, to be filled with you, to have you formed also in them. And through that, Lord Jesus, begin to make our world whole. And use our passion in everything else once you are in the rightful place to bring more love and joy and peace and hope to this needy world. We pray it in your mighty name, Jesus. Jesus.